Tervetuloa Kong Langeriin, podcastiin, jossa on kyse keinotekoisista kielistä ja ihmisistä, jotka luovat niitä. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road away is William Annis. Hello. And we have two guests here today. We have Scott Hamilton. Hey there. Yeah. And where are you, Scott, right now? Uh, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Seattle. Okay. And uh, Benjamin Paul Johnson. Hello. And you, what, you're on. You're on in the eastern. Yes, I'm in. I'm in Philadelphia. Okay, um, but um, we have Scott and and uh, Jamin both here uh, to talk about um, uh, brooding, which is a language that they've both worked on for the Riddles Brood Theater Company, um, and we'll get into that in just a minute before. We talk about brooding, though. Um, I want to make a, a little announcement. Uh, the Conlanging film that uh, we interviewed Britain about on Conlanger 112, uh, that, is, that has been, you know, in the works for a while. They have an Indiegogo up, Indiegogo up now. Uh, so um, uh, it should, it's, It's got a month left. It should be still going by the time the podcast uh, airs. So, yay! And there are many fun rewards. Mm -hmm. And for a donation of a mere $15,000, David Peterson will create a conlang for you. Is that um, Yeah, (laughs) $15,000. That seems about fair. (laughs) I'm not sure that anyone is going to to do that, but... uh, (laughs) There are uh, more reasonable donation levels in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and just uh, to be clear, um, uh, Conlangery was filmed for that uh, for for the Conlangery film. Uh, I don't think we've made the cut. Any any footage from that has made the cut. Uh, so it's like me and William maybe in there, but not sure. But. Uh, And the other thing is, William is doing the companion book for that film, so... Right. Just disclosure there. Yep. Hi there, this is George. I just need to break in to uh, add in a little bit on that Indiegogo. Uh, So the LCS has actually uh, given its own donation. It's giving uh, $1,000 to the campaign and up to $2,000 matching any LCS member who donates to the Conlanging film Indiegogo. So uh, there you can uh, double your pledge. Uh, Full disclosure, I am vice president of the LCS and I was directly involved with that deal. Thank you. And then the other thing uh, I want to say before we talk about Uh, As we get into talking about brooding, I want to say this uh, uh, Riddles Brood came to the LCS 
And uh, twice, first to to when they hired uh, Scott, and then when they hired uh, Jamin. Um, and I was actually directly involved with a little bit of the the stuff that we were doing with uh, with Riddle's Brood. So, um, so disclosures all up front here. <laughs> Just showing you how incestuous the conlanging world is. <laughs> okay, so. Um, let's, um, get into the, uh, the meat of things here. Uh, Scott, I'm going to talk, uh, first to you about this. Uh, and uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, how, how do people get, get, you know, hired for these things. In this case, it was through the LCS. I don't think it was, was it the, I think it was, uh, one of, uh, I think it was a uh, a blind process the first time and then a jobs board posting the second time i could be wrong on that but um, that's correct yeah yeah okay so but uh basically hired through the lcs we still do the jobs board stuff uh i don't know if we'll ever do the the blind stuff again we're trying to step away from that um but let's just talk a little bit about since you were the first one who they hired to work on brooding. There was some pre-existing material, right? But um, let's let's talk about you getting started working on the language, and then like just about uh, what's let's let's start with like just what's it like making a language for a theater company? Because that's 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 different from what we've talked about before. We we talk a lot. We've talked about. Languages made for films and TV, but not for live theater. Well, there's a the, how brooding started is a, sort of an interesting story overall. Um, the initial um, blind—I uh, don't know if audition is the right word—but um, actually had gotten sort of the wrong impression about what uh, uh, Ryan that Riddle's Brood wanted. Everyone sort of submitted this sort of thing of, you know, well, they're a comedy troupe, so we'll try to make it sound funny, or we'll try to, you know, you know, include wordplay and that sort of thing. And it turns out what he really wanted was something more of a um, a deeper sort of language for uh, that essentially was a private language that would be used by the characters in his plays. So um, the first thing uh, I found out was that um, what I expected to be doing was not what I was doing at all. But he had, um, with his friends for a long time, had built you know little bits of words here and there, and had used um, these words and various things, you know, everything from plays and such to you know role playing game sessions that sort of thing. Um, but they really kind of wanted to move it to the next level, and they gave me a few things that were uh, you know set in stone. There were a few words that were set in stone. Uh, they gave me the basics of an orthography, which was the, the basic format of it was, was set in stone. Um, and they gave me a, a setting, a background. Um, and in the background, this is a constructed language as well in context of the set. That gives you a lot of freedom, I'd think, because because you don't have to think about things being naturalistic and uh we'll get into it a little bit more there's a lot of things that don't seem totally naturalistic about the language. Oh yeah, definitely. Um definitely. But um that that sounds like, you know, an interesting thing. So, 
let's let's talk a little bit about the backstory. So it's it's in the story in the world a constructed language like who constructed it and why uh essentially it well it's uh sort of a uh well uh similar to to Triskedeslang in the sense of it, it's a uh sort of a thieves cant or a language designed to determine uh who is who's in and who's out mm. um it started off in the background as a code that was embedded in various things like artwork and drawings and that sort of thing, uh, which is why the orthography is based off of faces. So in the background, uh, the main main figure, Clyde Riddlesbrood, who's sort of a trickster figure, um, took these codes that he developed and then developed them into uh, a secret language, um, which you know he then used for you know. His various you know schemes and and such. Interesting. So one of the things that was that uh, one of the design principles was to hopefully make it such that it would be difficult, uh, be more difficult to understand unless you knew the trick. So uh, some of the orthography and some of the um, grammar and morphology uh, involve. Little things that aren't obvious, but uh, if you know the trick, then you can reproduce them, and um, you know, then you're you're one of you know, one of us. And who is us? Uh, this would be um, uh, the Riddles Brood group. Riddles Brood actually translates into I, I forget the exact name of it, but uh, the Brood, okay. uh, and hence brooding, and. Um, I don't. I never got a, exactly a clear picture of the details of the in-group, except that they were led by you know, you know, Riddlesbrood himself as sort of the titular um, head of uh, the subculture. Okay. So, how is the language used in the course of a play? I have seen snips that are from the documentary that show kids singing in the language. Um, is it used as spoken as well? It's used um, – there are spoken lines, uh, usually in, um, from what I remember, aphorisms and that sort of thing. Um, um, it's used in some of the songs. I know that initially uh, for one of their earlier um, uh, shows before Harkin, which is the one that Jamin did a lot of work on, uh, I translated a little bit. Um, they gave me uh, – an actress singing a, a tune um, and said, you know, please make it scan to this. Sure. Um, and so I did that. Um, also, um, at certain points, because the face motif of uh, the orthography, uh, there is in one of the dances where the characters have masks. Uh-huh. And they cycle through several masks in order to, to say something, you know, very simple and, riddle, and brooding. Nice. I like the – yeah, that's a, a convenient way if you're like, oh, you have to write song lyrics. I'm like, okay, how is it supposed to scan? But sending you someone singing, then you can like, okay, I can make this fit. Yeah, that was really nice because um, I'm not uh, a musician by any stretch of the imagination. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, that gave me – you know, I could just listen to it over to over and um, you know, say, ah, la, 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 yeah, that word fits there. Sure, and then pass it on. I have no idea. Like, if you're in a, you know, Metallica, 
And your guitarist comes up with this great thing, and here's the melody line, and then they hand it off to the guy who normally writes the lyrics. I mean, is that how that? I mean, I don't know if that's a normal working process in theater or with other musicians. If you know, you get a, a song sung in nonsense or just you know, la la la, and say, okay, please fit words to that. Um, don't I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, said, no, I don't I'm know. not musician by any stretch. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking out loud. It's uh, in any case, it seems like a useful way to solve that problem. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um. I want to throw to Jamin a little bit here. Um, you, so you took over for Scott after what Scott, you had to leave for, um, you know, life. And I had, I was writing a book and I just didn't have the time. Yeah. Just time reasons, life reasons. Um, yep. so it, do you, was your experience much different from what Scott's was? And also like, were you having to build a lot, or was the foundation really laid very well already? Well, it, uh, it was interesting because I I wasn't really sure what to expect um, from based on the job description, and it was actually a lot more uh, built up and and sort of smoothed out by the time that I took it over than I was expecting. So I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, I'll be you know creating an alphabet or you know. Putting together some sort of uh, fusional language or something, but it, I mean, most of the basic building blocks were already set up by Scott, and so really the first part of it was just uh, reading through what he had written about it and, and pretty much just memorizing the basics of it, and uh, and so really where where I started was just kind of codifying all of what was already there and building a lexicon that I could expand and expanding what was already expandable in it. So from what I'm getting there, it's like the first part of your job was learning the language. Exactly. Actually, that was part of the job description was um, that there would be uh, so much time to learn the language and then uh, before starting to put it into, into use. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that's definitely a, uh, um, a, an interesting thing to be, getting into because what you have to learn the language well enough that you can start expanding vocabulary and stuff. It's uh and so, so, uh, was, you know, the, and the, the same things, um, that Scott was doing, I presume you were doing just sort of translating dialogue, writing, did you have to write any songs? I don't know. Actually, as far as the music was concerned, um, we, we had kind of an interesting, uh, sort of the opposite approach to what Scott had, where he, he was able to base uh, on a tune um, or some sort of melody, he, he could fit words to it. We took basically the opposite approach to the song, where I was given a sort of uh, pre-written uh, poem or dialogue to work from and asked to translate that into Rudy. And then with that translation, uh, the uh, Ryan recommend gave that to the, the person who did most of the musical production and she then developed the song from the translation. Oh, okay. So basically so basically it was the other way around is that um for Scott they had they had one that uh he had to write write the 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 words to the tune and then for them for you you wrote the song and then they wrote the music to fit with the the words then right 
Did you uh, come up with some sort of metrical scheme or syllable counting or something to make his life easier? A little bit, although I, I wasn't entirely sure where the song was going metrically. So, um, and, and they actually worked a lot of the lines through in different sort of background choruses. And, and so ultimately it didn't actually make a lot of difference as far as the, the meter of the actual uh, lines and syllables. Okay. Mm. So, so I have no idea what sort of plays these are. What are these like? Are these comedies of errors? Are these uh, slap, slap, slapstick? I, I have no idea what these are. Actually, I have yet to see one, but I I pretty much know, know the background and basics of what they are. And it's uh, a lot of the central theme is this idea of uh, a land called Harken, which is a sort of um, not really a different dimension. It's sort of a, a well, I, I suppose an alternate dimension is the best way to describe it. Um, and I know the the play Harken in particular involves the main character kind of getting suck through to the other side uh, and um, and then learning brooding by being immersed in it on uh, in in Harkin oh. and uh, there's a book that Ryan has written recently which uh, also takes place in Harkin and deals a lot with the, the kind of crossover between this dimension and that one and uh, that that should be coming out soon if it's not already yeah I think it's out um because uh, I saw a reference to it on their site, but um, that's interesting. Scott, have you seen the shows? Uh, no, I've not seen any of the shows. Um, I've seen um, a few of the things that were um, done for the Conlang film, um, but that's about it. Wow. Wow. I, there's this idea in um, Wagnerian criticism of this idea of um, Gesamtkunstwerk. It's this like total art where the artist has control over everything, the words, the music, the set design, um, everything. Um, it would be interesting to talk to the author to find out how much he's trying to do this, right? We've got songs, we've got books, we've got plays, we have an invented language. Um, the writing system for the invented language also figures we, with, you know, masks. There's this sort of total approach to entertainment, and it's interesting to have a conlang involved in that, right? And uh, I'm, it's, uh, it, I, it, this, this, the story behind the 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 language internally intrigues me more and more because you know we start off with this is this is some sort of a code, and then now there's this whole other dimension. What's the is this a dimension created by Riddle's Brood or? Or what's what's going on there? Uh, that's a good question, and I think that's part of the mystery. Um, and and really, it's it's all about lots of various mysteries, sort of interwoven together. And but but the uh, the idea of the code is that, um, and, and and as Scott was saying, this sort of you know whether you're in the group or out of the group. Really, what that boils down to, as far as I'm understanding, is is whether you're from Harkin or not from Harkin. And if you suddenly find yourself in Harkin, whether you can kind of make the leap to uh, be considered one of the in-group. Right, and that plays out in the language. So uh, Jamin nicely gave us uh, 
uh, uh, links so that we can look at the grammars. And one of the, the features of the grammar in the pronouns is the pronouns distinguish um, in-group from out-group. Right, right. There's um, So there's all the personal pronouns. Um, there's no out-group form of of first person, obviously, and there's no in-group form for inanimate it, right? But otherwise, everything everything has both insider or outsider. That's a that's an interesting thing. So is that is, that's part of the identifying the in-group of people who speak the language? Then, oh yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that came from the author. Um, from Ryan himself, it is he wanted something. You know, he said, you know, "Can we, you know, can they have a different word for, you know, saying, you know, this, per- you know, he who is part of my group and he's who is not?" Um, and that really just played really well into the rest of the things that we were, I was doing with the language, anyways. Yeah, right. It's really interesting. I and this is one part of the language. A lot of the language is a little bit odd, but actually, this this could be an idea that could happen i think naturally because i mean sometimes politeness systems are sort of like this anyway um right we have uh what was i going to say we do have examples like in thai they have zillions of pronouns available and they often um they're not used quite so uh bluntly as this you know um inside versus outside but it could easily transfer into something like that um and then what's another one? There was some language of Native America that had a separate he and she for people that were not part of their tribe. Oh, okay. Not uh, not not the full pronoun set, but um, third person. Right, right. It, it's it's you know the being this thoroughgoing and uh, would would not necessarily be something uh, I would expect, but I could expect parts of this to occur. Um, Although it doesn't really matter because in the world it's, it's it's made by one guy and whatever that one guy wanted to do, um and um hearing now that this was like part of uh you know knowing the trick um really makes uh, a lot of the grammar make more sense to me because your morphology. And both of you can respond to this, but, um, it seems like the, like the morphology, there's not a whole lot of the more common things like prefix and suffix and such. There's a few infixes and there's a few things of like repeating vowels at the end of a word. And I think there's a, uh, disfix going on. So less common, uh, grammatical affixation strategies, less common morphological strategies that are sort of could can be seen as sort of tricksy, I think, in that way. Yeah, I, I definitely went for some things that um, were less common, and if nothing else, would seem to you know people to be you know a little more fun in the sense of it being exotic, um, and you know to kind of fit with the whole wordplay trickster aspect of um, uh, of the background and of the main character. Um, plus, I got to do a couple of you know weird little things, and I was like, "Oh, that wouldn't make sense unless you you made it that way to start off with." And oh yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's it is interesting. One question I did want to ask you is um looking at the Roman orthography. Uh is that like something like you were settled with at the beginning because of words they already had or uh, there were a few words that they were pretty um, set on, and so I had to work with those. And then I kind of – with the rest of them, I went with things that I thought would be relatively um, – ho- well, hopefully uh, intuitive um, right. to um, you know the non-linguist. Right. So it's like to, to us who are linguistically savvy, this, this Roman orthography is a little bit weird in a lot of ways, but – you know, it makes sense if you're just your audience is just like naive anglophone actors, right? Yeah. Do you guys and, record uh, uh, audio of you re- reciting stuff for them, or are they trying to re- reconstruct the sound based just on the written versions? I recorded um, sound yeah. a bit, especially for the parts that were going to be sung. Yeah. Yeah. I I also. Uh... I made a few YouTube videos so they could see the words as I was saying them also and uh, oh. for, for the Harkin production and uh, gave oh. that to them. Uh, can we get those those videos or are they marked private for obvious reasons? Uh, yeah, uh-huh. I, I don't think that would be a problem. Okay, well, you can you can clear it with someone if you need to. Just just to, to just so listeners, you know. Uh, want to know what I'm talking about is like, there's things like double E meaning the E sound and double O meaning the OO sound, not things I would necessarily choose for a conlang, but I can understand if there were pre-existing words from someone who's not into linguistics and then you're, you're just trying to make it intuitive for actors, then yeah, I can understand why those are there. <laughs> and yeah, not just go ahead. I was gonna say English speakers when they see double E or double O, you know, they they pretty much go to you know E and O, and there's, there's not really much you can do about it. Yeah, um, like I can say the the clips I've seen um, have the language being sung by kids. Is it mostly kids who are producing this language, or is is a mix of kids and adults? Uh, it's a pretty good mixture. Although I, I was actually surprised when I um. Yeah, um, Ryan asked me to come down to the theater uh, before the um, before they staged Harkin and just spend a couple hours down there working with the actors. And I didn't actually realize at the time that um, about half of the actors are kids, uh, especially this sort of chorus point singing in the background. Mm. So I, I worked with them and uh, helped go through the lines with them. And then there there are a couple of other actors who have some specific lines uh, throughout the. Uh, the show, and some of those lines are kind of repetitive, so the audience is expected to kind of understand them as uh, as the show goes on. Um, but but really, it was uh, it was it was mostly working with the kids to help them learn the song. Oh okay. wow, wow! That's interesting that there's an expectation that the audience is going to start picking up as well. Um, that that I mean, if if. I mean, this is the idea sometimes, like I did, you know, the the language for the video game and people are like, well, you should make the video game learners learn the language. I'm like, I think most gamers are going to find that an unpleasant and aversive experience. Unless, and, yeah, unless someone came up with a concept for a game where that was what it was about. Right, and I you knew beforehand. Think it would fly. Like, right, people know, who liked Myst would probably be okay with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love Myst, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote right. a book about Myst. Yeah. So uh, 
That's interesting. I, I have this kind of theory, this pet theory of my own, that a lot of modern art is actually kind of conlanging anyway. We're basically someone doing, you know, modern music, for example, that unfortunately most people don't listen to. Um, like they create a new musical language for every new art, you know, every new piece they produce. Um, unfortunately, though, most people don't know how to translate or don't know the language already, so it's kind of uh, off-putting to them. This, this uh, sounds like William putting on a postmodernist hat. Not a postmodernist hat. I'm just saying, I suppose it's a little bit postmodern since I've managed to turn music into language. But uh, <laughs> it is this interesting idea of expecting your audience to pick up on something they've never, ever been exposed to before, um, especially something as fundamental as language. I mean, it's a play. Language is the fundamental core of of what's going on in front of you. Have you uh, ever um, seen the play The Foreigner? No. In The Foreigner, uh, uh, the main character is um, a recluse who wants to be left alone, and but is um, kind of you know installed by some friends in a boarding house. The friends tell the people that oh, this person's a foreigner; he doesn't speak any English. Um, but they keep wanting to talk to him because you know they're sort of you know you know nice, friendly, you know rustic peoples, and. Um, so he starts making up gibberish words, um, and over the course of the play, um, the other people in the boarding house and the people in the town start picking up the gibberish words that he is that he's been using. So towards the end of the play, you start to get this feel of this you know gibberish language, and you start to expect certain words to show up in certain places. Wow, interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, other people have done this a little bit in books, you know, like um, A Clockwork Orange, that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, Do we have any? Well, you've never been. I'd be curious to know how audiences respond to this. The first first thing I want to say, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone say gibberish. Is that that something that people, the ways people say it around where you are? Oh, yeah. Gibberish or gibberish. Yeah, okay. It's 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 always it was always been gibberish to me, so I didn't know. But um, Might be a Southern California thing. Yeah. So anyway, on from that, um uh what was I saying? One thing about it is like, you know, you couldn't really have extended dialogues that were meaningful for the plot in a play. Because, I mean, technically you could have subtitles in a play displayed on like an LCD board because, you know, I've seen that in China. But uh, it's not usually uh, a thing that you would expect. So it's like it, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thought to have a language involved in a play in a place where, you know, maybe you can get an audience to learn a few words during the course of the play. But there's a question of like how how extensively could you actually use the language versus like in a in in a television or in on television or in a movie. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have Ryan here. I'd be really curious to know how different people respond to that. Oh well. Oh well. Uh, if I could say too that the uh, the dialogue that is in a play, a lot of times it'll be just a, a couple of words in brooding, and then they'll be repeated in English. And then, so those those few words that are used a few times throughout the play, you'll recognize by the end of it. But um, it's usually not more than a line or two. Okay. Hmm. And that sort of by you know everyone who goes to the play is like being inducted into the into the club. 
Exactly. I think that's exactly what Ryan's going for. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. In fact, uh, one of the things that happens in, in the sort of strategy of the plays, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how this works out because I haven't actually seen them yet, but uh, I think the idea is that it starts out whenever you refer to the audience, you use the word drunshun, which is you in the out group, you know, you, you strangers sort of, and then you gradually by the end of the, uh, by the, by the end of the play, you bring them into the in group. And so you'll say sloon instead of brunch. Okay. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I want to, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the writing system, the, the, you know, the, the, the faces. Um, so first of all, like this was, was this, this something that the, 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 the directors, the theater people wanted to do? And they like, provided the, the actual faces, you know, okay. and the, the, the list of faces and, um, the differences, you know, distinctions between the different faces were all pretty much set ahead of time. Um, there were a couple of them that were very, you know, distinctly set to certain sounds um you know the r especially the things that it you know would spell the, that would spell um uh the word riddles brood for instance um and if you look at um their um logo on their webpage there's the faces all around that logo that's riddles brood uh, that's the uh, in their original version that said riddles brood but now it says a sentence um but they had done that you know far long before they had talked to me so that was one of those things that was set in stone you know this was their you know essentially their corporate logo and uh we needed to make it work somehow and so that's been a, that was that was one of the big challenges to make something that felt like it was usable but really you know adhered to the fee, uh the idea uh of what they were trying to do with the faces Right. It's it's really interesting. It's, you know, it's it's they're they're kind of smallish um differences between the faces, but once you I think what once you get the hang of it, you could probably read it. Uh Oh, exactly. Well. Yeah, um and what there are there are and you have a this strong distinction between like seeing characters and blind characters. Mm-hmm. Um, is there like a reason for that like distinction to be big or? Um... Um, I wanted to um, once again, you know, put in uh, the trick, um, which uh, you know, to, so that you couldn't just like look at the faces and you know say all the time and say, okay, that. These are these sounds to these faces, and it comes through. Um, so I decided to make sen- essentially, you know, logograms. And um, Ryan had mentioned that in one or two places they had had a face with both eyes closed, but they didn't have any. They never really did anything with it. So those closed eyes uh, faces, or the blind ones. Uh, became sort of my playground for doing things, you know, such as logograms and, um, you know, different symbols for different ideas and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Now that I look at them, yeah, all the all these are associated with particular words the blind characters are. So that's an interesting 
uh thing to be to to be doing like the a lot of them are so yeah, yeah. ryan wanted both um complexity and brevity um so that kind of gave me a way to provide some brevity is you know look single face means is or you know is a copula um that sort of thing Uh, another way that we've used the um sort of the blind characters versus their uh the the i opened uh other versions is that um we can say okay we need a word that fits in these five faces and we're going to draw five faces here you know how do we do that and so sometimes you can it's an object, so you can chop out the vowels with no problem and then say, okay, well, let's put on this blind character that makes it an object instead of a subject. Or, you know, you can kind of, there's a little bit of flexibility in how many characters it actually takes to write something. Yeah, I I, I noticed just briefly in your lexicon that there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, words that have multiple spellings. Is that, like... Is that the main reason why there's multiple spellings, or? Um, well, I tried to indicate in there where uh, the uh, sort of the, the pure written language is an object, except uh, the first letter. If the first letter is a vowel, that ha- that it's indicated. Um, but you can add the vowels in in other places if you need to ex- to draw it out a little more, and you can contract it to a single logogram for for certain words. Uh, so I, I tried to indicate anywhere that. There might be some deviation. Right, that's a that's a lot of vowels to to have an object. But <laughs> <laughs> I love the dictionary, the though. I love the dictionary. It's just fun to look at um, with the the grammar stuff spelled out. Yeah, uh-huh. the, the you have all the forms there, which uh, you know, unexpected for a completely regular system, which is what this seems to be, but. But I can I can see how it could be useful for you know the 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 people who are not you know, you know some of the the uh, people who might be looking at this maybe are not um, not as uh, sophisticated or don't want to try to figure out what all the forms are and then just look at it. Um, when I initially started putting the lexicon together. I had created a sort of uh, Excel spreadsheet that would automatically calculate the correct forms for me. And then, um, and that was mostly just for my own use. But then when I started converting that to something that would generate a nice dictionary, I thought, why not just leave them in there? Um, It just made it easier in in the beginning to make sure I was given the right forms when I was doing translations, but this ended up being kind of a nice feature. Right. And it's, it's handy because even though it's a completely regular system, you have the the odd things like the contrasting vowels and the the all the um, you know vowel copying stuff that you know you might need to uh, quickly reference that instead of trying to like puzzle out what the form is, right? Right. Uh, is there where does the stress accent supposed to go? That is a good question. Um... <laughs> I never specified that in the original version, um, partially because um, you know I wasn't entirely certain I was going to be able to tell people how to to you know, uh, tell the actors how to appropriately stress it, and partially because I'm stress is a little bit of a weakness in in my my linguistics understanding, so I kind of left that one to chance. Okay, 
for a code language, there's no particular reason not to do that. But yeah, I mean, like for for stress, there's not. Yeah, I mean, you can you can do that if you want, just to you know let people work it out on their own. It's probably going to sound like uh, English stress most of the time. Uh, you could have you could have just assigned it to one syllable, but yeah, that's an interesting uh, idea to do. Um, as 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 I got into the language a little bit, I, I noticed I started uh, coming up with my own stress pattern. So I um, actually, before before that got sort of uh, solidified into something I couldn't back out of, I, I did check in with Ryan and Scott about that a little bit. And I still don't know if I have a, a specific answer about the stress, but really, uh, because of the way that vowels are played around with for inflection, um, the stress tends to be on the most important vowel. Uh, so for nouns, it's the last vowel. For verbs, it's either the first vowel or the last vowel. Okay. So the word for stupid, which is just looks marvelous to me, is fezanipte. Fezanipte. Uh, right. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it would be zanipte. Um, fezanipte? Okay. And the adjectives are a little bit different because they always end with a vowel, but that's not necessarily the important part of them unless there's only one syllable. Right. So how much, uh, Scott, how much vocabulary was there existing for you when you got this project? Uh, there were maybe, um, I got an example list of about 30 to 40, oh. but he said that there was only about five of them, maybe maybe six or seven of them that were, you know, these are, you know, in stone, do not change them. Uh-huh. Um, Ryan was very good about saying a lot of things. You know, if I have to change this, I will, but I'd rather not. Uh-huh. Um, so I spent a lot. I did a lot of effort to try to try to match what he had as much as possible. Uh-huh. It's always it's always nice to have that flexibility to say um, where if uh, the yeah they they're willing to change things if it if it if you have to to make it make sense. Yeah, Ryan was very good about. Um, but very good about you know while having his own vision on things, definitely willing to make adjustments to to make it um, deeper. Um, and so we had a lot of very good conversations across the whole language about that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's that's been my experience too with uh, with Ryan. We've we've actually kind of purposely worked in a few sort of fail safes if it turns out later that we do need this particular. Uh, if this particular thing that we're coming up with ends up breaking something else, we have a way to back out of it a little bit too. That's nice. That's useful. I love this dictionary. I haven't had time to really stare at uh, particular meanings, but this is fun. We have um, Graugrung, a lanky mammalian-like creature with double sets of elbows and knees that hunts and kills humans. So that's fun. Yeah, that, uh, the Graugrung is a... Is a uh creature from Harkin, although they do have a projection into our own world, and I'll, uh, that's part of the mystery that is in the book, so I'll, uh, I'll leave that a mystery, but we, we see them all around us, so I'll just leave it at that. Okay, I bet they're uh, squirrels, just because squirrels irritate me. Uh, I <laughs> Anyone who gardens will agree with me on this point. Um, yeah, I, uh, was it just for exoticism that you decided to go with infixes? Or did that have to do, I mean, was there already a hint in that direction, or was this part of the 
the tricksiness philosophy that you decided, you know, that interpreted that philosophy um, in terms of infixes? Uh, yeah, it was mostly for the exotic and sort of, you know, tricksy nature it would be to an English speaker. Uh-huh. George, did you have anything else on the grammar or that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I don't have anything. Let me let me look at my notes real quick. But um, the uh, guidance you liked the guidance on using prepositions. So even though we can't share the document, we can certainly talk about it. Right, right. There was the in in the document that we got, and I don't know what form this will take in anything that goes public. But um, uh, you 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 put the German. I think you put that together. It's just like a little translation guide. For prepositions, how do you translate of in various different meanings and such? And I just thought that was a good idea because, um, you know, recently, you know, I, I've been working on a language that like a big focus of what I've been doing is prepositions and like it can be, it can be really, um, a big job coming up with realistic prepositions and making it clear how they're used i end up like as i'm translating sentences i run into um a a prepositional phrase in english and then i go to my list of prepositions and i think okay which one of this am i going to use here (laughs) yeah that that uh that part of the guide was actually something that uh, Scott had created in in his original grammar and it is really helpful to be able to say you know use this word for two when you mean, you know, two in this sentence or uh, two, four, by, from, of, they, they all have their own kind of uh, nuances in English. So um, the, the way the prepositions were put together, uh, Scott actually wrote out a really nice, um, nice guide for, you know, what, what they mean versus what they all really actually mean and right. how to distinguish. Yeah. I just think that that's a that's a handy idea that people should have. Yeah. Well, then that's good, Scott, to have that uh, for people because it's it's just you know prepositions get complicated. Yeah, I've always noticed that um, that seems to be one of the places where I'll f- I, I seem to find a lot of variation between languages in terms of the exact you know you know areas of what means what in the preposition. So I wanted to make it clear. Um, and in a way that was a little easier for a non-linguist. Yeah, right. So, so I, I, I just want to say that to, to other conlangers, if you're using, if you have, um, well, you will have something that does these kinds of relationships for, so for whatever add positions or, uh, you know, your cases or whatever, you know, it's a good idea to, to t- try to think of like what, what prepositions, uh, what prepositions mean in English or in whatever your native language is, and then like think about okay, this particular sense of of how do you translate it? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's always exciting seeing a, a dictionary and something is defined as like by. Well, which by? <laughs> there's there's location. There's agency. And then uh, and then the the by. Does that by also include at and uh, and for or right. you know yeah so yeah this prepositions you gotta you gotta give good definitions for them um, but anyway um, let's let's try to get off of that a little bit um, the, 
I don't know. You you two are the people who've worked on this language. Are there any things that we didn't mention that you guys think are really interesting about brooding? Um we can start with Scott. Um no, I think we've we've talked about them. It was always the for me, it was always the you know the setting and the you know purpose of the language in the setting that intrigued me. Um, you know, the idea of you know going from a written code to somebody trying to shoehorn that into um, an, uh, a usable language, and I always kind of wanted to see what would happen in a hundred years of the language. What you know, what would get worn off, what would get changed. So, I think for me, the part that's particularly interesting was just coming into this after a lot of the foundation had been set and um, just seeing how it was put together by, uh, by it, uh, what came out of Ryan's mind and then out of Scott's mind to build this sort of blueprint for it. And then, you know, I, I came in not sure if I was going to be, you know, adding rooms or if I'm just going to be decorating or, you know, exactly how to, to use the architectural metaphor. But um, so it's been really interesting to see you know, there were a lot of things built into it that I never would have thought of myself or might not have used in the same way. And but to just be able to build off of those uh, has been uh, really quite interesting. Okay. Well, if I can throw into something just quickly, uh, uh, just because I was, I was um, uh, pulling, I was just looking through the dictionary as, as we were talking and, I found something interesting, uh, uh, that, you know, maybe is an example of some of the thinking that goes on into this language is there's, there's, um, apparently a distinction between uncovered areas of the body and covered areas. Like you have like the word, word for sock also means a foot that has something on it, right? Right. Um, and that's that was one of the first things that Ryan and I worked on uh, was this sort of idea of there are areas of the body that are supposed to be covered and areas that are not. And then if you have covered an area that's not supposed to be covered, that's sort of an additional decoration or, or something. So it's kind of a um, like a bonus uh, decoration. And then if there are areas that should be covered that aren't, that's sort of a detractor. And I think that uh, speaks a lot to... Um, the, the theater element of it and how things look on stage and things like that. So you have uh, parts of the body that are synonymous with the names of uh, the area, uh, the, the clothing that covers them, and then others that are, are um, that are not necessarily covered but can take the name of something that would cover them. Mm, that's 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 a, just an interesting uh, thing that I gleaned just from glancing at the dictionary. But yeah, that's, it's all very interesting stuff. So uh, how, so how often do you find yourself chatting with Ryan over these lexical subtleties? Well, it, it really depends on, on uh, what we're working on. When, when he was working on, uh, on Harkin and working on the book, um, we, we talked about them quite frequently. Um, he would say, you know, I have this kind of idea of, how these there could be kind of this play on words with this idea, and can we do that, and will that break anything? Or um, and and it really uh, and, and then you know in in between things while while they're working on other things, it it, uh, it it's a lot less frequent. But I'd I'd say 
you know, when, when we get into a new idea, we're, we're communicating several times a day for, for a week or so. Okay. okay. That's fun. I've never, I mean, I've only done one external project and except for a very small few pieces of vocabulary, mostly they just wanted translations coming down the line. They let me do all of the work on uh, any sort of lexical subtleties I was aiming at, but it's interesting that here the, the, the Ryan has much, has strong feelings about uh, at least some words. I always got the feeling that Ryan really loves wordplay and the possibilities of, um, of language. Um, but at some point, he just realized that he didn't have enough linguistic know-how to take it to the next level. Um, I think if he'd actually like been trained in linguistics, he would have been just a killer conlanger. That's yeah, ah, that's uh, interesting. I wish we could have talked to him, but um, uh, the 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 relationship and Scott, you had did you have the same sort of relationship where you would often talk about world building stuff and and lexicon stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. And Ryan would come up with an idea and say, you know, how you know this sounds really cool. This sounds what something something Clyde Riddle's brood would do. Uh, is it going to break anything? Uh, what can we do with it? Right. Uh, I th- I think really that that's the kind of relationship I would I would want conlangers to have with sort of the content creators that they're working with. That because. So much of it, especially with, when you're doing lexical stuff, so much of it is going to be affected by the world building and the, 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 the culture that the language exists in and all that, that really it should be something collaborative where there's a little bit of back and forth going on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's why I, um, one of the reasons I, I'm really fond of David Peterson's defiance languages because of that, you know, that the, he's they had that interplay, and it was it's very obvious in how it came out. Yeah, Jermaine, you were going to say something. Uh, yeah, when um, well, when uh, we were doing a lot of the work on the book, um, probably in in the fall, there, there were quite a lot of really interesting things that came out of ideas that went into the book um, that affected the language, like. Um, one thing in particular that's just really wild about uh, about the, the universe um, is that it, it changed sort of the way the language deals with the ideas of time. So I had created some words, for instance, um, for uh, for instance, for day and night and hour and things like that, uh, only to find that there is no day or night on Harkin, and those words ended up actually becoming a measure of distance and. And yet, in in our world, they they would still translate into day and night just based on on how those universes are different. And there there are a few examples like that. That um, uh, t- time is measured actually more by humidity than it is by periods of uh, light and darkness. Oh, okay. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so... Okay. It gets real, real muggy and then real, real dry in regular intervals, is what you're saying. Right. The, uh, the whole thing is is sort of based on on barometric pressure more than uh, more than it is on uh, day and night. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that I, I is have... something I have genuinely never heard of before. <laughs> I have a feeling like the rain is clockwork on this. On, in this in this world, so uh, okay. 
So that's that's interesting stuff. Um, you know, I wish I lived like near where the the production company was so I could go see some of these plays now because it's very very interesting stuff. Maybe I'll pick up the book sometime. Um, but um, do either of you have any other final thoughts? I think we're about ready to wrap up the episode. Let's start with Scott. Um, nothing particularly final. I just, it was a very fun, uh, project. Um, and, um, despite the fact that I couldn't help with it more, I'm really glad, uh, Jaman got it. And I'm, I really like the stuff that Jaman has taken, uh, the direction that Jaman has taken with the language. Great. And, and Jaman? Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's just been a really great process overall. Um, especially, uh, like I was saying before, just building on something that wasn't that, that, that already had a bit of a foundation really kind of uh, made me expand the way I think about it a lot. And uh, Scott and Ryan have been great to work with, and and it's uh it's it's been quite exciting. All right, well, that's really great. Uh, that that's really cool stuff. Um, so I think we'll wrap up the episode. Um. I encourage people to check out. We'll link to uh, the uh, Riddlesbrood Touring Theater Company. Uh, I'm going to be looking around it and seeing, like, where do they go if I can ever be in a place where they they are uh, performing. Um, and uh, and that that is brooding. And we'll we'll get whatever materials we can that we are allowed to release. We'll we'll. Um, we'll link to in, in the show notes and um, uh, so there's that check out uh, Riddle's Brood Brooding is uh, uh, that's brooding and then the other thing uh, Conlanging Conlanging film is uh, on Indiegogo if people want to go support that uh, and with that uh, I'm going to say thank you to Jemin and Scott, and happy Conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find Conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richard.